You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. Before we get started, I want to tell you about another show I think you'll love. On Historical Blindness, Nathaniel Lloyd looks at the weird stories of popular history. Hoaxes, mysteries, conspiracy theories, tales of the supernatural, and unreliable histories. But he cuts an admirable and fascinating line between taking extraordinary claims both seriously and critically. I first stumbled across historical blindness a couple of months ago when I was looking into the story of St. Joseph of Cupertino, a 17th century Franciscan friar who, on dozens of documented occasions, was seen to fly. Lucky for me, Nathaniel had just released his own episode about St. Joseph. Less luckily for me, it was so good that I no longer wanted to make one of my own. If you listen to this show, I can project with great confidence that you'll enjoy historical blindness. I'll drop a link in the episode notes that you should follow and hand you over real quickly to Nathaniel. Mysteries, hoaxes, folklore, conspiracy, and pseudo-history. Topics sometimes avoided by historians who don't want to normalize nonsense or draw attention to the blind spots in our knowledge of the past. But these are some of our most intriguing tales. The Lost Colony of Roanoke, The Man in the Iron Mask, The Princes in the Tower, The Battle of Los Angeles, The Turin Shroud. Stories like these fraught with ambiguities and falsehoods and suggesting alternate views of history, not only entertain, but also teach us to view the past and the present with a critical eye. Join me, Nathaniel Lloyd, as I delve into these stories on my podcast, Historical Blindness, and shine a light in the darker corners of the past. New episodes every other Tuesday, available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and most podcast apps. Act 1. Joseph, patron saint of immigrants, explorers, and happy death. The Brig Honduras Packet left London on the 10th of September, 1822. On board were around 70 passengers from all walks of life. Farmers, traders, miners, peddlers, artisans, a couple of doctors, and at least one prominent banker. They were headed for the city of St. Joseph, at the mouth of the Black River in present-day Honduras, to begin new lives. After several decades of endless war, with the United States, with Spain, and particularly with Napoleon over and over again, Britain was finally at peace. The first big manufacturing boom of the Industrial Revolution was at hand as the economy moved to peacetime footing. Wages rose, and with them, a new middle class began to form. It was, in theory, a good time to be British. On the other hand, the empire had crested, the vast ranks of navy and army men had nothing to do, and low interest rates made government bonds unappealing. 
If you were willing to work in a factory, you could accumulate a little bit of capital, though you couldn't very well put it anywhere, while awaiting the glad tidings of death to mercifully deliver you from the hacking, soot-coated hovels of 19th century London. But if a life surrounded by cholera and six-year-old street urchin pickpockets wasn't your bag, then there was always St. Joseph. In St. Joseph, the pilgrims of the Honduras packet knew things were different. The soil was rich, the waters were clean, gold flowed in sparkling flecks down the river, and precious stones littered the roads. All you had to do was reach down and grab them. The people of St. Joseph were kind, peaceable Anglophiles, with a small but functioning democracy complete with a house of parliament and a royal palace, set upon paved boulevards and arching bridges, surrounded by buildings and mansions built in a neoclassical style, Doric columns beside palm trees, a domed cathedral, a proscenium theater, and a grand opera house. The virgin forests were ripe with valuable lumber and bursting with easy, nutritious game. And, unlike so much of Central America, the climate was mild and relatively free of tropical disease. So the midship of the Honduras packet was filled not just with farmers, miners, peddlers, tradesmen, artisans, doctors, and bankers. The hold was filled not just with their every possession and tool and penny. The Honduras packet was stuffed almost to bursting with dreams. Dreams that made their way, along with their 70-odd dreamers and the ship's crew, across the Atlantic, through the Caribbean. Finally, nearly two months after setting sail, the Honduras packet reached the mouth of the Black River. The new immigrants clambered onto the decks, adorned in their finest clothes, ready to begin life in a new world. They couldn't see St. Joseph from the ship's anchor point because of a narrow bay that surrounded the port, so the captain fired a cannon to signal to the harbormaster that they had arrived. No sound rebounded but the echo of that shot. No boats rode forth to greet them. The hours ticked by without sign or signal. But that was all right. There were plenty of non-foreboding reasons why the people of St. Joseph might have missed them. It's just that, unbeknownst to the new settlers, none of those reasons were right. The passengers of the Honduras packet reasonably assumed that they had gotten off course and decided to disembark, begin unpacking their goods and possessions, and send off landing parties to sniff out the misplaced city of St. Joseph. Lieutenant Colonel Hector Hall, who was in charge of the expedition, managed to find some locals. They weren't as excited to see Englishmen as he'd been led to believe they would be, but they weren't hostile either, and to his relief, they had heard of the place he was looking for. Following the guides, Hall and his exploratory party soon reached St. Joseph. There was no opera house, no theater, no parliament or palace, no bridges, no columns, no boulevards paved or otherwise. There was, instead, some meek sign of settlement long abandoned. The remains of broken and unprofitable sugar mills, a few rusting cannons... The closest thing St. Joseph had to life was its still-standing cemetery, which at least functioned as intended, and gave the clearest sign to the passengers of the Honduras packet of what their new world had in store for them. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Deserted. Thank you.
Act 2. Hope on the Rocks. On the banks of the Black River Lagoon, the settlers slept rough. The jungle was too thick to allow for any sort of real shelter, so instead they made makeshift tents and lean-tos out of their blankets and sticks. Contrary to their understanding, the heat was high, the humidity stifling. Some of them had been skeptical at first back in Britain about going to a place called the Mosquito Coast, but they were assured that it was called that after the native Mosquito people and that there were very few of the pestering insects about. That first clause was correct. The second one was very much not. In the morning, they began unloading the ship. Or rather, they began attempting to unload the ship. The expectation had been for a port and longshoremen, docks and ropes and pulleys and all that fun stuff. Instead, they had to roll barrels of provisions and materials across a long, shallow sandbar, where they became soaked with seawater and ruined. Captain Hedgecock of the Honduras Packet eventually put a stop to this. Not because he was worried about the futures and fortunes of those on shore, but because he was owed money for the charter. He was supposed to receive it at St. Joseph, and since there didn't appear to be any St. Joseph, he declared he would hold the rest of the cargo as security against his claim. Four days later, the Honduras packet left the lagoon. Depending on the source, Captain Hedgecock either sailed her into open water to avoid a big storm, or else he just picked up with his crew and bailed. Either way, Neither he nor his ship returned, and the bulk of the goods, stores, and valuables left on board were sold off for profit at Cape Gracias a Dios. Four months later, a second ship arrived, the Kinnersley Castle, carrying a hundred and sixty more dreamers. The first band of immigrants had at least experienced the soft cushion of gradual creeping dread. It had taken a few days for their circumstances to fully dawn on them. Those aboard the second voyage were struck by the truth in a near instant. A large portion of them moved immediately to rage. They threw provisions overboard, broke boxes, smashed barrels. They started fistfights with the people who had landed before them and with one another. Seven men raised a black flag and declared publicly that they were robbers now and would torment the rest. But the majority simply slunk into malaise and defeat, which was just as bad. They refused, forgot, and neglected all necessary work. Soon the Kinnersley Castle disembarked just as the Honduras packet had, leaving behind the nearly 250 stranded would-be pioneers. That number didn't hold long. The city of St. Joseph didn't exist, and neither did the temperate mosquito-free climate, and neither, then, naturally, did the darth of tropical disease. Fever spread throughout the camp, vicious and quick. Not only did the diseases prove deadly, but they broke spirits and slowed work even further. The sick lay on the bare ground, sheltered from the tropical sun by loose branches and leaves sloppily laid over them. Within a week, more than half the population was ill, and nine were dead, most from yellow fever and malaria. One man died on an ill-advised attempt to reach British Honduras when his makeshift kayak swamped. A cobbler by the name of Heli shot himself in the head. He was sick, yes, but perhaps more critically, he was disappointed. He'd left behind a family in Edinburgh for a promise now broken. He would never be appointed royal shoemaker to the Princess of Poyais. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Act 3. A New World Gregor McGregor of the Clan McGregor was born on the shores of Loch Katrine in the Scottish Highlands. There isn't a lot to be said about his early life. His father was probably a sea captain working for the East India Company and died in 1794 when Gregor was eight years old. His biography begins to come alive when Gregor turned 16 and joined the army. He was stationed with the 57th foot as an ensign. It was 1803 and Britain had just declared war on Napoleon. McGregor spent the better part of his first year in service fortifying the southeast coast of Kent against possible French invasion. Somehow, in that fairly humdrum duty, McGregor must have excelled, because before the 57th was relocated to Gibraltar in 1804, he'd risen to the rank of lieutenant. In the interim, he met, quickly courted, and then married Maria Bowater, a young and wealthy woman from an accomplished military family. When he arrived in Gibraltar, he purchased a commission for the rank of captain, In 1809, his regiment was sent to Portugal to try to help drive the French out of Spain. Not long after he arrived in Lisbon, he was transferred away from the 57th. It would seem that for all his remarkable ladder climbing, the 22-year-old Gregor MacGregor wasn't the most popular guy in the British Army. There are reports that he was vain, stiff, overly formal. There are reports that he got into a tiff with a high-ranking officer that he boorishly refused to back down from. Whatever it was, not long after they reached Lisbon, he wasn't just removed from the 57th, but from the entire British military. Someone had him seconded to serve directly under the Portuguese as a major instead. After six months, he resigned and returned to his wife in Edinburgh. He had no job, no title, no prospects. But that hardly kept him from inventing some. He advertised himself as having received a knighthood from Portugal for his valiant service, and as having fought with the 57th at the Battle of Elbira, where they were nicknamed the Diehards. Both claims were untrue, and neither seemed to have been more than politely swallowed by the upper crust of Edinburgh. After less than a year of failing to position himself in high society there, he moved himself and Maria to London. He did quite a bit better there, claiming to be the newly named chieftain of Clan MacGregor, For all that London knew, that could have been true. And anyway, it would explain where Gregor came by all his money. In truth, he came by his money via Maria's dowry and allowance, which quickly dried up in December of 1811, when she, um, well, died. I'm sure Gregor McGregor was just heartsick about the whole thing, but what he mainly was, was cash poor. The Bowater family was unwilling to support him in his widowerhood, and he couldn't very well go out and find another wealthy young woman to seduce. The most sensible path forward would be to rejoin the military. It was the only thing he knew how to do when you got right down to it. 
but he'd left it in such an embarrassing huff that he doubted there'd be a place left for him in the British Army. So, he joined the Venezuelan one instead. The Venezuelan War of Independence had just begun, with General Francisco de Miranda more or less in charge of a new fledgling pseudo-republic. McGregor sold his family farm and set sail for Caracas, where he introduced himself to Miranda as Sir Gregor, a veteran of the diehards. The First Republic of Venezuela was in trouble. Just two weeks before McGregor arrived, there'd been a massive earthquake that had destroyed huge swaths of Caracas and killed somewhere around 20,000. Royalist forces loyal to Spain were on the advance, and the revolting provinces were beginning to fracture. So, whether Miranda was impressed by his largely falsified credentials, or if he was merely too desperate to give the matter much thought, he established Sir Gregor as a colonel in the Venezuelan cavalry. Gregor McGregor was a liar, an opportunist, full of puffery. His actual military experience was short, and his time leading in the field of battle practically nil. Yet, against all odds, he proved to be a surprisingly effective commander. His first time out, he managed to rout a large royalist contingent outside of Marrakech. Within three months, he was promoted to brigadier general and married Josefa McGregor, Simone Bolivar's niece. McGregor's star was ascending, but the First Republic was falling apart. Gregor and Josefa were married on June 10, 1812. The next month, the royalists took Puerto Cabello, and the whole experiment fell apart. Miranda was captured by the Spanish, the Republic collapsed, and Simone Bolivar escaped to Curaçao, along with McGregor and his new wife. Gregor McGregor spent the next few years earning his stripes. Everything that had gotten him to the Americas were lies. He'd never been with the diehards, he wasn't a knight of the Portuguese Order of Christ, he wasn't the chief of Clan McGregor. But in the New World, he racked up real accomplishments. He joined the fight for independence in New Granada, now Colombia. As in Venezuela, the Spanish were too powerful to repel, but McGregor impressed by helping hold down the port city of Cartagena for half a year and eventually escaping with most of the city's defenders intact via a daring midnight hit-and-run attack on the Spanish blockade. In the meantime, Simón Bolívar had well and truly taken up the mantle of the revolution in South America. He'd raised an army and retaken Caracas, only to lose it again and start all over. While McGregor was escaping Cartagena for Jamaica, Bolivar was on his way to building a third independent Venezuelan army, and he brought on his nephew-in-law and brother-in-arms, Gregor McGregor, as brigadier general. Again, McGregor served with distinction in a number of actions. Most notably, after Bolivar was again defeated by royalists at La Cabrera, McGregor organized a retreat through hundreds of miles of jungle to Barcelona, pursued by two Spanish columns, which he managed to not just fend off, but to defeat in a true act of tactical genius. He was a hero to the revolutionary cause, and yet he continued to overstate and exaggerate his accomplishments and continued to get into damaging interpersonal squabbles with his superiors. So he left Bolivar's service and traveled north to the United States, where he raised a small army for the purpose of liberating Florida from Spanish rule. On June 29, 1817, he attacked the pirate-infested Amelia Island along the northeastern coast of Florida. The Spanish commander surrendered, and McGregor took Fort San Carlos, raising a flag of his own design, a green cross upon a white field, and naming himself leader of the Republic of the Floridas. His nation and its dictates were largely ignored 
until September, when the Spanish plunked a huge, threatening army on the Florida coast opposite Amelia Island. Upon calculating their odds, McGregor suddenly announced he had to leave. He hastily turned over control to former Congressman Jared Irwin and boarded a ship for Nassau, while his doomed army hissed and cursed at him. Incredibly, not long after McGregor's cartoonishly cowardly escape, Representative Irwin was met by French privateers who reinforced his position, and his forces managed to keep Amelia away from the Spanish until the United States bought Florida from them in 1819. Naturally, Gregor McGregor tried to claim some of that glory and heroism for himself. He had medals struck with his green cross design and a Latin inscription reading, Liberty for the Floridas under McGregor. But his abandonment of Amelia Island marked a major shift. For a few years there, he had really been a courageous and accomplished leader whose actual acts of daring-do garnered him fame and respect. But it seems as though McGregor now questioned whether it was worth all the effort and risk. After all, he'd gotten to that point through dissembling and deceit, which had worked out just as well for him, really. And even after he had fled Amelia, he was able to sell most people on an alternative history in which he had bravely held the island. As far as McGregor's experience went, the difference between actually doing difficult things and simply saying you had done difficult things was that one of them required you to, like, do them. Nuts to that, he apparently concluded. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. After a stint in Nassau, during which Josefa gave birth to their first child, Gregorio, McGregor returned again to Venezuela, where Simón Bolivar was leading a third republic. He was given a thousand pounds to hire British troops to serve the cause, which he promptly misappropriated. Instead, he promised his countrymen cheap officer commissions and outrageously high wages, neither of which he ended up furnishing. He continued making lofty promises and cowardly Welshes. He set up an attack on a port in New Granada and then abandoned his colonel, William Rafter, to take on the whole Spanish forces by himself while McGregor and his men waited back on their ship. Once victory was assured, McGregor finally formed his landing party in time to give a rousing post-facto St. Crispin's Day speech for a battle already over. Rather than properly defending his newly taken territory, the Scotsman instead sat around all day, drawing up plans for a knightly order of his own devising, the Order of the Green Cross, of course. When the Spanish army arrived at the port two weeks after his men had taken it, McGregor was asleep midday. Awoken by the sounds of his riflemen being murdered, he threw his bed out the window 
and then jumped onto it from two stories above, onto a beach, and began swimming out to sea. Meanwhile, Colonel William Rafter was once again left behind to fight the Spanish on his own, while McGregor watched on from the decks of his ship, which was ironically named the Hero. 200 of his men were either killed or captured, including Colonel William Rafter. It's worth centering in on Rafter, because it's only due to his captivity that we have so much of the detail of McGregor's misdeeds in South America. After he was abandoned to the Spanish, his brother, Michael Rafter, came to New Granada and bought a commission for the rank of lieutenant colonel from McGregor in hopes that he might retrieve his sibling. It didn't work out. William was killed during an escape attempt before Michael could manage a rescue. Instead, Michael was around to witness and take testimony of the greed, incompetence, and cupidity of Gregor McGregor, and to write up a book detailing his heinous misconduct. It's through Michael that we know about McGregor's next big action, the Battle of Rio de la Hacha, where he once again left one of his subordinate officers out in the cold to fight the Spanish alone while he waited on his ship. Again, his colonel, William Norcoft, managed to take the target without his commander, and when finally McGregor landed fresh as a daisy at the battle-scarred Rio de la Hacha, he proclaimed himself the Inca of New Granada. Again, he bumbled around his newly gotten city, giving out medals and titles of his own devising, while the Spanish regrouped and encircled him. He promoted one of his recruiters, an Irishman by the name of Thomas Eyre, to the rank of general. Eyre was concerned about his wife and children, who were there at Rio de la Hacha, but McGregor assured him he would put them on a ship safe to Haiti himself. He kept that promise only too well. He got on the ship along with them, and again abandoned his troops to be killed by the Spanish as he sailed safely away. The newly minted General Eyre was among the dead. This was all a bit much for his charm and guile to pull him through. Word of McGregor's cowardice and defeat made its way around the Americas. In British-controlled Jamaica, warrants were put out for him on charges of piracy, while in South America, Simone Bolivar had him tried in absentia for treason, with orders that he be hanged if he ever stepped foot again in Venezuela. Michael Rafter returned to London, where he published Memoirs of Gregor McGregor, comprising a sketch of the revolution in New Granada and Venezuela, where he laid out in mortifying detail how the Scotsman had abandoned two separate armies, composed mainly of British men, to die. Towards the end of the book, Rafter offered up his assessment of McGregor. It began... In summing up the character of General McGregor, we may consider him politically, though not naturally, dead. As to suppose, after the terrible catastrophe of Rio de la Hacha, that any person could be induced again to join him in his desperate projects would be to conceive a degree of madness and folly of which human nature, however fallen, is incapable. It might indeed be reasonably conjectured that he himself, fully sensible of the degraded state of his character, would abandon all further hope of sublunary exultation and willingly retire for the remainder of his days to a life of humble obscurity. On each and every point, Rafter would soon be proven extraordinarily, totally, and terribly wrong. The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. 
If something is preventing you from achieving your goals or interfering with your happiness, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. They'll assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist in a safe and private online environment in under 24 hours from signing up. It's not self-help, it's professional counseling provided at your own pace. Send messages to your counselor anytime and get timely, thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions all without having to leave your home. BetterHelp is committed to offering great therapeutic care at an affordable price. It's cheaper than traditional counseling with financial aid available, and you can change counselors anytime you want. It's available worldwide, with counselors specializing in areas that might not be available to you locally, like self-esteem, LGBT matters, anxiety, or depression. BetterHelp is currently recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states, and there's a reason why. Their service is convenient, professional, and affordable. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. A month or so ago, I did something really stressful. I dropped my completed absentee ballot into a mailbox. For two days, I worried about it. Would it get lost? Would the Postal Service be so slow that it wouldn't make it in time? Would it get rejected or thrown out? That's not how things are supposed to be. Voting should be free, fair, and safe for everyone eligible. And no one should have to worry about whether their vote is going to be counted. Yet, 25 of these United States have enacted voting restrictions in the last decade, and 3.2 million registration applications and ballots were rejected in the 2018 midterm election. We live in a democracy. Demand that your elected officials have the time to count every vote in the 2020 elections. Decision makers nationwide want to make it harder to get every ballot counted and voice heard. Don't let this stop you from taking a stand to protect your voting and civil rights. They will not silence us. Visit andstillivote.org to call your elected officials today to make sure every vote is counted. Paid for by the Leadership Conference Education Fund. Act 4. A man, a plan, a scam. Poyace. Sir Gregor MacGregor, the Hannibal of modern Carthage, the Xenophon of the Americas, the Inca of New Granada, Knight of the Green Cross and of the Order of God, was broke, humiliated, and homeless. If he went to South America, he'd be executed as a traitor. If he went to the Caribbean, he'd be executed as a pirate. Instead, he headed to the Mosquito Coast, a long, low-lying coastal line of swampy, pestilential jungle. The Mosquito Coast contained few prospects for McGregor, but the upshot was that it also contained very few people who were looking to kill him. In fact, that lack of people looking to kill people had long been the Mosquito Coast's biggest selling point. The Mosquito people were a mix of natives who had escaped Spanish conquest, pirates who had escaped justice, and slaves who had escaped bondage. Long before McGregor washed up there, the English had discovered the Mosquitoes' antipathy for Spain, which they shared, and cut a series of alliances with them. The Limeys would recognize the territory as the Mosquito Kingdom, crown its leader, King, and Britain would be its protectorate. Basically, the whole thing was just a way for England to fuck with Spain. 
The Mosquito King wasn't given any actual power except on the rare occasion when England would come along and tell them to make trouble with the Spanish for a while to distract them from whatever the Empire was up to. By the time Gregor McGregor showed up, the whole arrangement was practically forgotten. But not quite. George Frederick Augustus I was the boy king of the Mosquito Kingdom. His father had been murdered when he was very young in a probable coup attempt, and George had been spirited away to Belize for safekeeping until he came of age in 1816. The 15-year-old, newly coronated leader was in for a rough time. The Mosquito King never had much power of office, but between his youth and his long estrangement from the country, Augustus struggled to keep any sort of control. Several of the regional chieftains refused to recognize his rule and established themselves as local leaders with self-given titles like general and governor. Out of his depth, Augustus was looking for help anywhere he could find it. Enter Gregor McGregor with the cask of rum. Gregor got the 20-year-old boy king drunk and convinced him to sign over a land grant for a swath of jungle the size of Wales. What exactly King Augustus thought he was going to get out of it is disputed. Maybe Gregor promised jewelry or alcohol, or maybe an alliance. Whatever McGregor offered him, it wasn't much. But that is not to say Augustus was getting a raw deal. The land was junk. It couldn't be cultivated or developed or governed. It produced nothing but bumper crops of malaria. The last time the English had tried to lay down roots there was when some colonists formed the settlement of St. Joseph which had been abandoned in 1783. But in that wide swath of impenetrable, humid, disease-ridden land, Gregor McGregor saw an opportunity. When he arrived back in London in late spring of 1821, Gregor McGregor was no longer calling himself a knight, or a general, or chieftain of Clan McGregor, or Inca of New Granada. He was a prince, or, as the Poyer people he ruled said, a Kazik, the Kazik of Poyes. He was received with great interest. People had heard of his non-existent time with the diehards, or of his masterful retreat from Caracas, during which he defeated two Spanish battalions. What they hadn't heard of, seemingly, were the several times he'd abandoned hundreds of British troops to be captured and or killed. Michael Rafter's book, it seems hadn't been much of a page-turner. The way Gregor described it, he had returned to be Poyes' official representative at the coronation of King George IV. But, now that he was here, he was hoping to extend the opportunities of his paradisic adopted homeland to the people of Britain. Poyes was, according to its cazique, a land of plenty. The fertile, fruit-filled forests were bathed in a perpetually mild summer, such that anyone willing to put hoe to field could count on three full crops yearly, of corn or sugar or tobacco or cotton, all of which grew easily and thick. The game was fat and dumb. You could send out a boy with a musket in the morning, and by afternoon he'd have meat enough to feed a family for a week. The poorer people were kind and intelligent, particularly keen on the British who had so long protected them and the Mosquito King from Spanish invasion. Their civilization was rich, vibrant, and shockingly advanced. The city of St. Joseph was marked with paved boulevards, on which stood Roman-style marble buildings with tall Doric columns, the bridges, the theater, the opera house. 
all looked over by a complicated and highly functioning tricameral parliamentary government under the flag of Poyais, a green cross upon a white field. With the help of a couple of hopeless dupes and a few more cunning cons, Gregor McGregor established a trio of Poyasian ligations in London, Edinburgh, and Glasgow. He attended high society dinners and events. He printed a book under the pseudonym Captain Thomas Strangeways, entitled Sketch of the Mosquito Shore, Including the Territory of Poyais, which described the country as only just this far short of the Great Rock Candy Mountain. All of this was done with a simple goal in mind, to make money. He floated a bond issue of £200,000 sterling to the investment class with a promised 6% interest rate. The bonds were quickly gobbled up. Then he began selling land at four shillings an acre. It was an audacious and an audaciously successful scam. By 1822, Gregor McGregor had gone from penniless to a multi-millionaire. He might have walked away right there, and his story would have been that of a clever, Pied Piper-esque swindler who had taken England and Scotland for all he could nab and retired in luxury. Instead, he did something somewhat inexplicable. He started gathering settlers to send to Poyais. Maybe he thought this was a necessary step, that if he didn't ship people off to the New World, suspicions would be aroused in the banking class. Or maybe he was just so greedy that he couldn't help but grab every last shilling available. That must at least be partly it. After all, these settlers gave up more money for more land, for royal appointments, like shoemaker to the Princess of Poyais, and for safe transit. They even gave over their British pounds to be converted into worthless Poyasian dollars, secured, quote, by order of His Royal Highness Gregor, Kazik of Poyais. But there is another possible explanation for the truly terrible second phase of this con, that Gregor believed in it. It's hard to overstate the meticulous and pointless detail that went into Gregor McGregor's description of Poyais. He described its every minute bureaucracy. There was a complicated system of titles, each of which included coats of arms, a robust military system, each branch and rank of which had a uniform. Years before, Gregor McGregor had let two cities under his control be retaken by Spain while he lay about dreaming up convoluted rituals, ranks, titles, and medals for his phony Order of the Green Cross. But maybe it wasn't phony to him. Maybe it was something he thought he could make manifest through sheer commitment. And maybe that same deluded belief extended to his make-believe kingdom. Whatever the case, you know what happened next. The emigration, suffering, and death of hundreds from the Honduras packet and the Kenserly Castle. After the Kenserly Castle dropped off 200 or so passengers, there was no word from the world for three months, during which the new Poyes pioneers lay upon their blankets, dying of disease and starvation. Hector Hall recognized that something was wrong nearly the moment the Honduras packet reached shore, and he had a good idea of what that something was, too. Hall was an experienced British officer himself, whom McGregor not only put in charge of the landing expedition, but promised both rank and title. Before he departed London, McGregor commissioned him as Lieutenant Colonel of the 2nd Native Regiment of Foot, which, 
Hall was assured, was the most prestigious of the Poyasian military regiments. Once the settlers were er, settled, Hall was to take over as chief of the civil department and be dubbed a baron, given a large estate outside of the grand city of St. Joseph. It was Hall who was first led to the remains of St. Joseph, which confirmed his sinking suspicions. They'd all been had. But he kept his mouth shut for fear of further demoralizing his already sinking company. Instead, he struck out with some of the other officers that McGregor had put under his command, searching for help or land or anything, anything that might help them to survive. The sick and dying back in the lagoon only knew that Hall kept disappearing with his chosen favored men, and that they were all very tight-lipped about a secret mission. Justifiably paranoid, they began to abandon their Captain, Baron, Lieutenant, Colonel, Chief. While searching for someone, anyone, to help the 250 suffering settlers back at Black River Lagoon, Hector Hall stumbled upon a bit of luck in the shape of George Frederick Augustus I, the Mosquito King himself. Hall explained that he was with the first group of immigrants sent to Poyais on behalf of the Kazik, Gregor McGregor. The what? Augustus might as well have responded. Gregor McGregor was no Kazik, no prince, no nothing. Yeah, they'd made a deal for some land, but whatever its terms were, McGregor hadn't met them. No, the land had been rescinded, and everyone on the Mosquito Coast because of that bastard Gregor McGregor had to get the hell out ASAP. They would get the hell out gladly, Hall explained, but they had no ship, and many of the people were too sick to move anyway. King Augustus wasn't without a heart. He decided that anyone who wanted could stay, as long as they remained around the swampy lagoon, and as long as they renounced their British citizenship and swore fealty to him, and as long as they were willing to rebuy the land they'd purchased from McGregor at 25 cents an acre. It was an impossible set of demands, made only more impossible when Hall confirmed that the Poyasian money he and his fellow immigrants had exchanged their British pounds for was worthless. None of the Mosquito would accept it in exchange for foraged fruit, let alone land deeds. At the beginning of April, a month and a half after the second huddled mass of 160 immigrants had joined the wretched refuse on the teeming shore, a mission was launched. Five wan and wasting men built a boat and managed to row their way to Belize, where they were able to tell the British government there about their plight. Two government officials were dispatched in a small ship called the Mexican Eagle to reconnoitre the situation. When they arrived on April 26th, Chief Magistrate Marshal Bennett explained to the pile of bedraggled humanity strewn about the lagoon that there was no such place as Poyais, and no such title as Kazik thereof. Hall soon ordered everyone removed and wrote to the Commander-in-Chief at Belize, Major General Cod, to please help rescue his people. The Mexican Eagle was not large enough to hold so many invalids. It took three voyages to finally clear the Black River Lagoon in late June of 1823. A refugee camp was built in Belize for the ailing Poyasian mission. The military and government allocated funds for their care, which was matched by donations of money and time from the people of Belize, who took pity on the poor, misled, plagued emigres. For their trouble, Gregor McGregor had them lambasted in the press and in the court, 
he published a pamphlet under the pseudonym Colonel George Augustine Lowe, entitled The Merchants of Honduras Unmasked, in which he charged the Belizeans with embezzlement, coercion, and mistreatment. Legal charges were made that the Poyasians had been duped out of their land by greedy bureaucrats who had imprisoned them in camps in order to sell their property. It's worth retracing how we got here to fully grasp the brutal, unnecessary callousness on display. Gregor McGregor had convinced hundreds of people to give up their homes, their jobs, and in some cases their families. He'd even taken their last bits of spending money in exchange for a fraudulent currency he had drawn up. He'd sent them off to an inhospitable jungle to die. And then he slurred their rescuers and launched baseless legal fights against them. Of course, the Belizeans were ultimately exonerated because they weren't just innocent, they were benevolent. So why spend that time and effort? Maybe it was an attempt to muddy the waters around his own crimes. Or maybe it was just the sheer fuck you of it. In the meantime, Gregor McGregor was continuing on with his scam, sending more and more ships full of Scottish immigrants off to the Mosquito Coast to die. 105 were on board the Skeen, which arrived at the lagoon in August of 1823. They refused to disembark, seeing that there were no signs of either St. Joseph or the people who had come before them. But they had no money to pay for a return voyage, and so the captain of the Skeen dropped them off in Belize too, where they joined the other refugees. From then on, British authorities in the Caribbean started making it their business to intercept and stop ships headed for Poyais. They turned back the Albion and the Alknamak, the Mary and the Aporto Packet. They missed the John, which made its way to the Black River and wrecked there. Thankfully, the crew was rescued. Slowly, the refugee camp emptied out. Some of the pilgrims stayed in Belize. A few went to Jamaica, British Honduras, or the United States. But more than 70% of them died. At least 180 people. The good news, though, is that around 40 of the survivors made their way back to Britain, where Sir Gregor McGregor could finally get what was coming to him. Act 5. Deserted. St. Joseph was the legal father and guardian of the Christ child. In the Catholic tradition, he is the patron saint of many aspects, nearly all of which had failed the people stuck at the cemetery and ruins that bore his name. Of immigrants, of explorers, of pilgrims, of travelers and carpenters, and even realtors. He is the patron saint of happy death, which held a special irony to those who had expired on the bare ground half a world away from their homes. But there was one part of his portfolio that St. Joseph had never revoked from them. Protection from doubt. When the survivors of Poyais reached Britain in mid-October 1823, their story buzzed all around the island, in papers and pamphlets and city streets, from London to Edinburgh and everywhere in between. But the Poyasian settlers took umbrage with one aspect of it. Yes, they had sold nearly everything they had, had trekked across the Atlantic for an abandoned city in a country that didn't exist. They had suffered illness, desperation, and hunger, and were delivered from death only by fickle providence. But they wanted to make sure everyone understood. It wasn't Gregor McGregor's fault. It was, they said, Hector Hall who had defrauded and imperiled them. 
While they had been fleeced and their families and friends bereft of life and limb, the greatest victim of Colonel Hall's machinations was none other than Gregor McGregor, who had trusted the roustabout with his non-existent nation. Gregor McGregor, for his part, agreed. It was Hall and his associates who were responsible for the tragedy. If he was guilty of anything, it was of having been too trusting in the men he chose to lead the party. He instructed his subordinates at the ligations to file writs of libel against anyone who dared write that Poyase wasn't real. Hadn't he suffered enough without having to deal with such lies? By this time, McGregor had left Britain, perhaps because he'd already worked his scheme down to the bone in London and Edinburgh, or else in anticipation of his victim's return. He departed for Paris just weeks before their arrival. In the City of Light, he started up the Poyet scheme again. He spent nearly three years there. He attempted to float another Poyetian bond issue for 300,000 francs, but couldn't get it off the ground. So, he again started selling land and promises. Luckily, the French authorities became suspicious when dozens of people requested passports for a country they'd never heard of before. They ordered the ship held at port and issued arrest warrants for McGregor and three of his top deputies, Gustavus Butler Hipsley, Thomas Irving, and a Frenchman, whom the court only addressed as Le Hubby. Le Hubby was the managing director of the Compagnie de la Nouvelle Nustrie, a French trading firm that McGregor had suckered into brokering all his dirty deals. When the warrants went out, Le Hubby made a run for it, disappearing into the Netherlands. McGregor initially went to Earth. He was quickly found and detained at La Force Prison, along with Hippesley and Irving. In jail, McGregor tried to argue that he had diplomatic immunity from Poyace and that he was being held, quote, contrary to human rights. The French court was unimpressed. But he had another defense lined up. Nouvelle Neustrie acted as a pass-through for McGregor, a convenient legal shield. He sold land to the firm, and then the firm sold the land to would-be fortune seekers. This provided a way for the Scotsman to claim ignorance of the whole affair. And with the company's managing director, Le Hubby, running from the law, he had a good case to again say that he was the swindled, not the swindler. All three Englishmen were acquitted. Before he could be retried, Gregor McGregor left Paris and returned to London, where, finally, he was arrested again. Desert and dessert. In the English language, there are two words with the spelling, homographs. The first and more common one comes to us from the old French word, also spelled desert, which itself comes from the Latin desertum. The literal meaning is thing abandoned. The Latin verb form is deserir, which means to forsake. St. Joseph was a desert, a thing abandoned, a wasteland, a wilderness and the people who traveled there were deserted, forsaken. The other desert also comes to English from the Latin via the Old French. The Latin etymon is deservir, which literally translates to to completely serve. A desert is fair recompense, the suitable reward or punishment that one deserves. They're just deserts. Outside of philosophy, we don't use dessert very much, although we love to invoke its meaning when we misuse the word karma, which isn't the same thing at all. Stop saying karma that way, please. 
We might not talk explicitly about desserts in our day-to-day lives, but we think in terms of them all the time. What I mean is that we are pattern-seeking creatures, deep down in the most implastic parts of our brains. And one of the patterns we most readily seek is a pattern of justice. Think about it. When you hear that someone has had a string of bad luck, isn't there a part of you, however small, that wonders what they did to deserve it? Hell, the most complex and chewy book in the Bible, the book of Job, is all about explaining why in the world bad things would happen to good people. And in the end, the story pulls its punch and rewards Job anyway. Because we are simply not programmed to accept that kind of injustice. There should be desserts. And if desserts can't be delivered by God, or fate, or the universe itself, then the least civilization can do is step up to the plate and correct that wrong, right? One of the basic functions of government, any government, right below protecting life, liberty, and property, is the doling out of desserts, a justice system. To editorialize even more than I currently am, let's take the death penalty. It makes little to no logical sense. It's expensive, it's cruel, it's imperfect, it doesn't reduce crime, it goes against every notion of forgiveness, contrition, and redemption. It literally kills innocent people. But it appeals to that deep-seated desire for dessert. There is no satisfying way to complete this story, because it lacks any sort of instructive or demonstrative moral. It runs fully against the grain, of our desire for dessert. After a few days in prison in Westminster, Gregor McGregor was released, without charges. He never saw another cell, let alone a gallows. He tried to run the Poyet scheme a few more times. In 1827, he attempted to float another bond issue. Not many people bought it, but he didn't get into any trouble for it either. He tried to sell land in his fictional country again the next year and managed to find a few buyers. Unfortunately, George Frederick Augustus I, King of the Mosquito, had been strangled to death by his wife in 1824, and his brother, Robert Charles Frederick, succeeded him. By 1827, King Robert was selling the exact same land to the exact same people, but for real. Soon, other conmen got in on the game, and the competition of numerous other phony Poyais realtors, and an actual real one, drove McGregor out of his fraudulent business. He finally had to give up the scheme in 1837. The next year, Josepha died in their home near Edinburgh, and Gregor McGregor once again left Great Britain. He crossed the ocean for Venezuela, where Simone Bolivar had promised to have him killed. Luckily, Simone Bolivar had been dead for eight years and his edict forgotten. Instead of receiving his just desserts, Gregor McGregor managed to have himself restored to the rank of general and given a large pension. He lived out the rest of his life happily in Caracas, where he was hailed as a hero. He died there of natural causes on December 4, 1845. The president of Venezuela marched behind his coffin to the funeral, where he was buried with full military honors at the Caracas Cathedral. His obituary described him as a valiant champion of independence. It's not fair. Gregor McGregor is probably the single worst person to ever get his story told on this show. He's responsible for the deaths of hundreds of people, either through his greed, his cowardice, or his ego. 
It doesn't even matter which one, because they're so intermingled. Enriching himself is the same thing as stealing glory, is the same thing as saving his own skin. He embarked upon this stupid swindle just to scalp hardworking people out of their livelihoods, but that wasn't enough for him. He had to take it further and further and further. He had to put them in danger. For what? Just to see if he could? Or to support his own delusion? Or maybe he just had the moral sense of a seven-year-old boy with a magnifying glass kneeling over an anthill. And once he ruined so many lives, once he'd gotten his hands good and bloody, he attacked the rescuers, the people who were just there to pick up the pieces of his destruction. He clogged the courts and media with frivolous bullshit for no appreciable purpose other than his own entertainment and the continued propagation of his chaotic fantasies. Worst of all, he maintained such a perplexing and inexplicable grip on his victims that even some of them continued to support him through it all and turned against anyone and everyone who tried to keep the wheels on, committing themselves to bizarre, incoherent conspiracy theories to spare their leader from guilt. There has to be a dessert for this guy, right? He can't die happily on a beach, still raised up by deceived sycophants even as he's born to the grave. We've got to be able to invent some punishment, some torment, some denouement that, in the Latin, serves him completely. Maybe we could imagine some torture deep within his psyche that he never showed the world. We could invent a hole deep within his heart of hearts that ate at him always, that every last bit of his life was a vain attempt to drown out the shrill, shrieking truth that screamed within his head, telling him he was a useless, broken, unlovable fraud. We can tell ourselves that in his last moments, when the silence fell, he was left with that truth, and that looking it in the face was his due recompense for a life poorly lived. But honestly, we know he doesn't have that depth, don't we? There can be no black hole in something so shallow, so there's no justice to be written, no dessert to be envisioned. The best we can say, and we should say it loudly, joyously, and daily, is that he can't hurt anyone anymore. Because as of noon, January 20th, he won't be president. Hey, we've got merchandise now. If you'd like a cool constant coffee mug or t-shirt or a hoodie or a pillow, it is your lucky day. We've got a few designs up, including the constant logo, a really cool shipwreck design by Susie Kirkwood, and a neat fool killer submarine being crushed by a giant octopus by Heather. Go to constantpodcast.com and click over to store to check them out or follow the link in the show notes. Music for today's episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rosevere, and... What? We had some Bach in there, I think, some Dvorak, and a good deal of Chasson. Uh, very special thanks go out to our patron supporters, Joey Shop, Louis Claus, Brandon Wagner, and Adsbad? That sounds more like commentary than a name, Ads. If you'd like your thinly veiled criticism of broadcast capitalism read on air too, go to patreon.com slash the constant and sign up to help the constant get made. If you haven't, please take a second to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and tell a friend. We're a part of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, 
home to Rumble Strip with Erica Heilman, which I believe is the perfect palate cleanser to everything barely tolerable about my show. It's quiet, thoughtful, and compassionate. Her latest episode is about Francois Clemens, better known as Officer Clemens from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Erica talks to Officer Clemens about his love of family, his love of singing, and his love of Fred Rogers. He sings a solid 35% of the interview. It is really lovely. Go check it out. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, home to Captain George Streeter, who ran a fraudulent land scheme that... No, wait, wait, wait. Let's not give that one away at the tail. George Streeter deserves an episode all his own. Maybe soon. Anyway, from Chicago, Illinois, this has been The Constant.